You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Chris Carr, Attorney General, is joining us right now. And Chris, we appreciate you being with us on the program. Good morning, Martha. Great to be with you as always. So we are making great progress in holding people accountable relating to human trafficking and sex trafficking. Can you update us on that? We have not talked about that in a while. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Martha. Martha, first before this is the first time I've been on since the passing of, of former First Lady Sandra Deal, and I know you were close to her and so many of us. And I just want to say she was a great lady and, and just one of the most genuine people I knew and just fortunate to be able to work with the Deal administration. So we're thinking about Governor Deal and his family. And uh, talking about human trafficking, we are making progress. In fact, last year alone, Martha, we rescued and assisted 107 victims. That's 107 lives that will forever be changed because uh, we're having the ability now to go out and prosecute work with local, state, uh, and federal law enforcement. Last year alone, we prosecuted 51 defendants. And just in the last month, we've obtained three new convictions, two 25-year sentences, and one 15-year sentence for folks that are purchasing uh, underage children, both buyers and sellers. So we're making progress. I'm really pleased. We've got a great team working all over the state, helping our, uh, to protect our most vulnerable in this state. That is really good news. What are the biggest challenges you're facing in your office right now? Because it seems like you're involved in everything, Chris. Well, I tell you, it's, it's not challenges. It's opportunities that we have. And I'm just grateful we have this opportunity to go after human trafficking. We now have a gang unit, thanks to Governor Kemp and the legislature, recognizing that, you know, violent crime, 60 to 90 percent of all violent crimes committed by a gang member, we now have the authority to work with DAs, with the GBI, with U.S. attorneys, the FBI, and others to protect Georgians. I remind everybody, the Georgia Constitution says it's the paramount duty of government to protect person and property. So I don't care if you live in southwest Georgia, southwest Atlanta, Buckhead, or Gainesville, every single Georgian deserves to be safe. And when you're talking about gangs, who are the communities that are most often terrorized? Lower income, racially diverse and immigrant populations. And it's Republicans that have made this commitment to protect each and every Georgian. So it's the opportunities that we have. And the only way that works, Martha, is to be able to work with with, uh, your law enforcement partners. Don't care who gets the credit, just so long as people are being protected and are safe. And I'm really pleased with it. And I'm excited. We've got, again, good leadership in those two teams, great relationships. And uh, the, the mission is important, protecting Georgians. Your opponent, uh, Jen Jordan, um, is talking a lot about what laws she'll enforce and what laws she won't enforce. Um, you know, I've looked at her record. She missed a lot of votes when she was a state senator. And and it seems to me that if she wants to make law, she ought to, should have stayed in the state Senate. What is the role of the attorney general? It's not to make law, is it? Oh, no, Martha, you, you're exactly right. And that's a key factor in this race. It is my duty as the Attorney General to uphold the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution and laws of the state of Georgia, and to represent the interests of the people of our state. 
to your point, it's fine not to like the laws in our state, but we have a way to change the law. That's through the legislative process. So I don't understand my, why my opponent's quitting, because as attorney general, that's not your job to make the law. And you certainly, again, if, if you want to change it, stay in the legislature, but you certainly don't run for district attorney and you absolutely don't run for attorney general. And that's an issue that we have, too. She's standing arm in arm with these district attorneys around the state that are also saying they're not going to enforce the law. We've got one, a DA in Athens, that's written a memo saying here are the categories of crime she's not going to enforce. That's a dereliction of duty. The job is to enforce the laws, not to interpret the laws. It's not to make the laws. And it's dangerous when you start having folks that one elected official, one executive branch or or judicial branch official who says, I don't like it, so I'm not going to enforce it. That's a complete dereliction of duty, and that is a key component in this race because my opponent has said there are all different kind of laws she doesn't agree with and she won't enforce, and that just undermines our system of government. Well, your old boss, Senator Johnny Isaacson, and my old boss, Governor Nathan Deal, who I worked for at RealPAC uh, during the whole Tea Party movement, he used to say, and they both used to say, you need to enforce the laws or change them. You know, you can't decide what laws you're going to enforce and what laws you're not going to enforce. And that's what bothers me the most about not only district attorneys around this country, but attorney generals who think it is their job to make the law. You don't pass any laws, Chris Carr, as attorney general. You have to enforce the laws. Now, I'm sure you have a great working relationship with this governor and you get input into what kinds of things they're going to try to put in the legislature. But once the legislature has spoken and the laws have been passed and signed by the governor, you have to enforce them. Well, that's exactly right. Let's use human trafficking and gangs, two issues that we thought were critically important. While we were trying to go out there and do everything we can to rescue those 107 victims, my opponent was voting against giving us the tools that we need. And why, Martha? Pure politics. While we were saying that violent crime is committed by gang members, she said that we shouldn't have this unit. And, oh, by the way, violent crime is actually committed by gun makers. And she's going to go out and sue the gun makers on day one, she said. So you're exactly right. What you've seen is a trend that the left can't get something done through the legislative process, so they want to come in and weaponize the uh, district or the attorney general's office. Well, two things will happen if my opponent wins. One, our state's going to be less safe, and two, we are not going to be the number one state in the nation in which to do business because she'll be targeting businesses that she doesn't like and not enforcing laws she disagrees with. Well, and I think, too, when we look at these kinds of things that we're we're working with as far as the legislature is concerned is that you know a lot of people on the left are really mad about the overturning of roe v wade but the bottom line is what happened over time is the people of the states of the united states of america elected representatives to represent them in their state legislatures they did a very good job in my view of electing people who reflected their values and those values ultimately led to the dobbs case going up to the supreme court and leading to the overturn of roe v wade to me that's exactly how things should work that you have a legislature that in the case of a state legislature represents a smaller number of people than congressmen do but the fact of the matter is congress could have codified roe v wade at any time they wanted to there were several times when they had enough votes to do it and they never did it 
there what what your opponent and others are saying is that somehow those legislators that represent on the state level don't actually represent the people and that they ought to actually have a wink and a nod policy against pass against how they enforce laws and to me that is never going to work well legally and constitutionally the issue of abortion is now rightfully where it belongs with the state and here's the thing again martha if this is so important to my opponent if the issue is so important why is she quitting the legislature that's where these battles are, are intended to be fought. It's not the job of the, the job of the attorney general is to enforce the laws duly passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, not intended to be to, to, to pass the laws and to make the laws. So, again, she should be staying in the legislature and fighting there if that's what the issue is. But but to say you're not going to enforce the law because you disagree with it literally undermines how we govern ourselves as a people, it, it's, as I said before, it's a dereliction of duty. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Chris Carr, if people want to help you, how can they do that? Uh, we'd love to take all the help we can get. I want to ask all your listeners for their vote. Go to chriscarrga.com. You can help us out. We'll take all the help we can get. 54 days to the election and 54 days to victory, Martha. Absolutely. Chris Carr, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining us right now is Gene Gabolis, who is the CEO of World Energy, which is a carbon net zero uh, solutions provider. Um, he's going to be attending the White House celebration uh, that they're having later on the signing of um, the Inflation Reduction Act. But I really wanted to talk to him more about his business because, you know, I'm a I'm a capitalist, and I believe that you can come up with new ways of doing things and that the market will tell you if they're, they're the right ways to do things. Gene, welcome to the program. How are you? From one capitalist to another, Martha, I am thrilled to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Sure thing. I mean, look, I think that I'm more of an all-in energy person. I think there are going to be times when... Uh, you need, you know, when you, if you have extreme heat or extreme cold, that there might be needs for different kinds of energy resources. I know you're, though, in this kind of jet fuel business where you're trying to come up with this net zero jet fuel. And I think that's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So for, for starters, I think we have to be in all, you know, we all have to be all, all in uh, energy uh, types. Uh, there's no way we're going to go from, uh, you know, traditional fossil-based uh, fuels that, that drive virtually everything that we do to a fully sustainable fuel economy overnight. This is a big transition, and we've been involved in transition for uh, going on 25 years now. Um, World Energy started with uh, as, as a biodiesel commercial commercialization business. We grew to have uh, eight plants, including one in Rome, Georgia. Uh, we, uh, over, over time started to evolve into the development of something called renewable diesel, which is made in, uh, a, 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 a version of a traditional refinery. And then, uh, to sustainable aviation fuel. And sustainable aviation fuel is a, is a fuel, uh, that's, that works just like traditional aviation fuel, but it's made from, uh, renewable inputs, and, and the result is a, a net carbon reduction of about 85% over uh, over fossil fuel. 
We're still at a relatively modest scale, uh, but we're in the middle of a $2 billion expansion in our facility in, in, in Los Angeles and have just recently announced a, a similar project on the Houston Ship Channel in Houston. You know, it's funny you mentioned biodiesel. So back in 2008, when uh, gas prices were high again, my son, who's a mechanical engineer, he was in at Georgia Tech at the time. He's now, of course, far along in his career. But he, you know, he was a poor college student. And so he um, he converted a a uh, rabbit, a Volkswagen rabbit to diesel fuel to biodiesel. And uh, he, you know, he had the big, you know, he used vegetable oil. This is before people realized it was a commodity. And, you know, so he was able to, he converted this vehicle and was able to get 1,900 miles on a tank of diesel using the the vegetable oil too. So I've been kind of following this whole thing, and so is he for a very, very long time. And, you know, but it's a combination, right? Even in that vehicle, you had a combination of diesel and bio. And I know that's a very primitive example, but it's it's how you use things. You know, at the University of Georgia, my alma mater, they have one small coal-fired plant that's still on campus that is mm-hmm. only used when it's really cold or it's really hot. I mean, it almost never gets used, but it's there to be able to be used. And eventually they're going to phase it out. But at right now, if they were to take it out of the, the process of energy that they use, it would cost them $40 million, which you don't want to put on the taxpayers. So it's it's an interesting thing because... What we need are more people like you that will talk about the whole picture of energy because too many times, just like with anything else we talk about in politics, you're either a fossil fuels person or you're a renewable person and they you never meet in between. I think you can be both. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, good for your son, by the way. And he's a, he's a good analogy to how transitional energy will work. So he's, uh, he's a kid at Georgia Tech. He's learning, he's experimenting, he's trying things out. Well, over the course of his career and his lifetime, he'll get more and more sophisticated. And the early experiments that he did while he was at at, at Georgia Tech will be the things that empower his growth over time. Oh, no doubt about it. So he's a 38-year-old father of three now, and he's, he's doing his Cub Scout um, he's leading the Cub Scout troop, and um, his in-laws have a farm. They live in Lexington, Kentucky, have a farm where they want to do campouts. Well, the Cub Scouts require that you have a flushable toilet if you're going to take the little Cub Scouts out for a thing. <laughs> so right now, he is designing a outhouse for this piece of property they've got <laughs> that's going to meet the needs. So he's that kind of guy, let me tell you. So, you know, I, I don't know how to try tie that one into the subject matter. <laughs> but, but it's but anyway, he, he's, it's, a, he's a, he's a clever, innovative, he's guy a clever individual. To, and, you know, yeah. he learned that from his dad. My husband is like a build things, make things, fix things kind of guy. And yeah. when we moved into our house 25 years ago, we pulled up in the driveway to look at the house. And I remember saying, I hope I like this house because my husband's going to buy this shop. And so uh, because there was a separate workshop on this piece of property and I went and it turned out the house was everything we said we didn't want. It was crank out windows. The bedrooms were small, but we bought the house. We've lived there 25 (laughs) years and my husband's had a separate workshop all that time. So he's been very happy, (laughs) you know, hey. 
<laughs> Apple doesn't fall far, right? That's right. That's right. So let me ask you. I got to get to the tough question here before we let you go. You're going to be at this um, signing of this, and, and I have to say, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, because mm-hmm. I just don't think spending that level of money is smart in this in, in this economy. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think we've spent so much money because of COVID in the last number of years. It's tough. So how do you mm-hmm. square as a very successful business person? you know, the spending at this level and celebrating the signing of a bill like this? Well, look, Martha, I completely agree with what you said earlier about um, that that so often we hear about energy transition in this binary world. You're either renewables or you're traditional, and that's that. Uh, We absolutely have to thoughtfully transition from one to the other, but we have to transition the status quo is not an option. We cannot just sit tight. That is not going to work. And whoever goes first, whoever leads in this transition, not only will get all of the societal benefits from cleaner fuels, but they're going to get the jobs. They're going to get the investment. So the I, I hear you on the, on the sensitivity to public spending and the inflation that has resulted from it and, and, and the like. But we don't have time to wait for the rest of the world to lead uh, energy transition. We cannot afford not to lead energy transition. And what I agree with you, the the name of the act is a little ironic, but what the IRA did was puts the United States squarely in the pole position as it relates to driving energy transition and all the jobs and investment that comes with it. Gene, I hope you're right. I, my concern is is that inflation is killing killing middle class families right now, and I just kind of think that if you've got a fire in the kitchen, you shouldn't be building an addition onto the house. You got to put that fire out in the kitchen. <laughs> but I hear you, and I think that having these kinds of conversations are important. And you know, and I appreciate you, and I hope you'll come back someday. Well, I really appreciate being on. Enjoyed the t- chat. Thank you so much. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and joining me right now is Todd Starnes. You're going to hear him later today, but you're going to hear him here right now. Welcome. Martha, it is great to be here. Good to see you again. Thank you. So you were here for the Faith and Freedom event last night. I was speaking at the, I was at the VVA, uh, which I was very excited to be there. Um, but tell us about it. It was pretty fascinating. Uh, once I got there, uh, the traffic, and you never get used to the traffic in uh, in the Atlanta Well, and area. going north on 400 is just It was insane. Hard. It yeah. was, I may have hit the horn a couple of times uh, uh, getting here. You know, it was, uh, it was a fascinating night, and just to see uh, the enthusiasm, there are probably about a thousand or so people there, uh, and the crowd was really raucous. They were having a good time. Uh, and they really responded well to a lot of the candidates, uh, of course. It was uh, like an old-fashioned rally, it really. It really was. Yeah. Uh, Barry Loudermilk, uh, Herschel Walker, of course, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, and a number of estate candidates as well. And uh, and people were fired up, and it was really exciting to see that sort of enthusiasm here in Georgia uh, because I, I think everybody agrees that as Georgia goes, so goes the nation in this election Well, cycle. and people got to get out and vote. Yes. I know. 
know that there's still people out there that are concerned, and, and you should be. But like Herschel Walker said, one of the things I liked about Herschel right from the beginning is he, one, in a primary, asked Democrats and Republicans to vote for him, and two, said that the only way we're going to change things is if we vote. And that is absolutely true. You may be concerned about your vote counting, Todd, but if you don't vote, you know your vote won't count. Well, look, um, I, I'm from Memphis, and we just had a, a major election in August, and as a result of only 20% of the registered voters going to the polls, now not a single Republican holds high office in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we now have a George Soros-style district attorney who controls uh, and decides who gets tried as an adult and a juvenile, and he wants to raise the juvenile age to 25 years old. Elections have consequences, Martha, and I I hope people learn the lesson that we learned in Memphis. If you don't get out, you don't go vote, well, you got no excuses. You know, I'm glad you brought that up about the Memphis election, because I think one of the things that the life movement did very well over the last 20 years was that they stopped focusing so much on federal and started electing a lot of state house members that were pro-life and that ultimately led to Dobbs and led to all of that. But I think what you're saying is, Todd, people, I'm not saying don't care about your congressman and your senator. You have to. We want you to vote. But these local elections matter and you ought to care about them. Absolutely. And and of course, with Roe v. Wade uh, going away, that makes the state house elections all the more important. Uh, so and I, I think that uh, we certainly saw that in the uh, in the Tennessee races uh, that we had back in August and uh, had a chance to meet some of the, uh, the the state lawmakers or folks running for state office here in Georgia. And I think you guys are very fortunate and blessed to have a really great crop of, of candidates this go around. Yeah, I think we do, too. So I want to shift gears to this special master thing. What caught my ear a little bit? was Raymond Deary, a Reagan appointee. And I immediately had to think to myself, how old is this guy? (laughs) Okay, so he's 78, which is, you know, that's basically the age that people are doing things now, I guess. (laughs) You know, it's, what is it, 78 is the new 50 or something? I I don't know. I guess, I guess. You know, I I think a lot of people are are, are beginning to see through all of this. Uh, you know, word came out yesterday, I think, what, 50 uh, Trump-related supporters have had their, um, have had search warrants served on them, FBI raids, confiscating the phones. And, and I think, by and large, people are beginning to say, wait a second, what, this is, this sounds really like political payback more so than trying to get to the bottom of some sort of a crime. You know, we had a young man that ran against uh, Andrew. Clyde in this last primary um, by the name of Ben Souther, who was had been a young FBI agent, and he's not there anymore, but he had been a young FBI agent, and he was telling me about some of these problems with the agency, where not so much in the field office, it's just like everything else, right? The field offices are still what you would expect. The problem is, all of this stuff related to Trump is coming out of the D.C. office, where I call it the bureaucratization of the intelligence world, where prior to World War II, we did not have permanent CIA. We didn't have all this. Now they've got buildings with 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 benefits and retirement plans and and career paths, and they care more about holding on to their job than doing the right thing. 
No, that's that's a fair assessment, and, and that's what President Trump. You know, I think he used a different form of, of verbiage. You know, he <laughs> oh. called it the deep. He called it the the swamp. You yes, know, and the deep yes, state. Yes, and, and he's right, and and you're right. Uh, I think there is a uh, there is a bureaucratic class in this country, and they have a lot of power. Uh, they cut. You know, the the presidential administrations come and go; they stay, and as a result, they've accumulated a lot of power over the years. So, our friend Doug Collins. Um, used to talk about when we ran against each other 10 years ago, I was in favor of term limits. He wasn't for that very reason of the bureaucracy stuff. And, you know, in the Department of Defense, they move around to different jobs every three to six years because you don't want anybody so embedded in one thing that nothing gets done. Uh, I think that's not a bad... I, I get that. I'm willing to consider that. Even though I'm still term limits, I'm willing to consider that the bigger problem is the bureaucracy. Yes. Um, and again, for me, it's a matter of you know, let the people decide. Yes. And ultimately, the people are lazy. They don't want to get out. They don't <laughs> want to go vote. And, uh, and as a result, you know, we, uh, we just, um, we have a county clerk in, uh, in, in Memphis. It's been a national scandal. Nobody can get their car tags. And, uh, the, pe- the, the auto dealers are, are freaking out because they're, all the, uh, the temporary tags are expiring. People were enraged. The state's coming in having to take over our car tag office in the largest city in Tennessee. This is all happening leading up to the election. She was up for re-election. And she literally got elected uh, because of her skin color and her political affiliation. I mean, that's all people were, that's all they cared about. They did not care about whether or not that person could do the job. And we've got to do something to address that that mentality. Uh, that's on Republicans, you know, a lot of it. We've got to get out there and we've got to, um, we've got to let people know about our message and that we are a big tent party. So what do you think, because I think whether President Trump runs again or some other, whether it's DeSantis or whoever it is, the most important thing we've got to have going into 2024 is, one, a Republican Congress and Senate, but two, somebody who can communicate leadership and not get caught in the fray. Oh, sure. And it cannot be personality driven. It can, this, this cannot become the party of Trump because Trump is great. Let's say he gets elected. Yeah, yeah. That's it. We're going to have to, we'll have to be somebody else's party. So it has to be about the platform. It has to be about the issues. And it has to be about somebody who can, who can communicate those issues and deliver on the campaign promises. And that's why Donald Trump was so effective. Is that he promised he and delivered. he delivered? Yes, he delivered. I was having lunch with somebody who was, is very uh, Trumpy, and and um, he said, you know, if he could have just stopped talking about thirty seconds before he did on most things, and I think that's probably true. He kept all his promises. He did what he said he was going to do. Ah, uh, they called George W. Bush Hitler. So I, yeah, I don't I know. know. They I mean, did. It's, it's true. You know, it's and, very true. And now they love him. And now they now love they him. love him. Mm-hmm. Now they love him. Todd Starnes every day from twelve to three. We love you. We love you, too. It's a mutual admiration society. That's what it is. <laughs> but I'm so glad he was in the building today and we could talk. And uh, we'll keep talking. Lots more to come right here. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com. And you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.